Welcome back to the review course for uh, core nursing fundamentals and now we're going to continue with pediatrics. What is it meant by a congenital condition? A congenital condition is one that is present at birth. It may be caused by genetic factors, non-genetic factors, or a combination of both. Some congenital conditions are noticed at birth. Others may go undetected until much later. Children with congenital conditions often require frequent hospitalization and long-term follow-up and care. Can you explain congenital heart defects? Sure. Congenital heart defects refer to structural or functional heart anomalies that occur during fetal development and are present at birth, although symptoms may not be detected until much later. Some children do have symptoms right at birth. Others, again, they may be a number of years old before any symptoms are detected. There are two types of congenital heart defects, acyanotic and cyanotic. Acyanotic heart defects result in oxygenated blood being shunted from the systemic to the pulmonary circulation. The blood leaving the aorta is completely oxygenated, therefore the child does not have the clinical sign of cyanosis. Cyanotic heart defects result in unoxygenated blood being shunted from the right to the left side of the heart where it mixes with oxygenated blood. The result is in the clinical sign of cyanosis. What are some examples of acyanotic heart defects? The most common acyanotic heart defects are the patent ductus arteriosus, commonly referred to as a PDA, atrial septal defect, which is commonly referred to as an ASD, and a ventricular septal defect, commonly referred to as VSD. First, we'll discuss the PDA. The ductus arteriosus is the fetal structure that connects the pulmonary artery and the aorta. Failure of this structure to close at birth results in a PDA. This defect allows shunting of blood from the aorta to the pulmonary artery. Clinical manifestations will depend on the size of the defect and the amount of blood being shunted. This can result in increased pulmonary blood flow and signs of congestive heart failure. Now, a little bit about an ASD, or an atrial septal defect. An abnormal opening in the septum between the left and the right atria, allowing blood to be shunted from the left to the right side of the heart, is an ASD. Again, clinical manifestations will depend on the size of the defect and the amount of blood being shunted from one side of the heart to the other. Finally, a VSD, or a ventricular septal defect. This is an opening in the septum between the ventricles, allowing blood to be shunted from the left to the right side of the heart. The clinical symptoms are directly related to the size of the defect and the amount of blood being shunted. Ventricular septal defects occur more frequently than any other cardiac defect. Also, a VSD is often associated with other cardiac defects and other congenital anomalies affecting other organ systems of the body. What is the medical management of these acyanotic defects? Medical management depends on the symptomatology the child is exhibiting. Remember, symptomatology depends on the amount of blood being shunted from one side of the heart to the other. Asymptomatic children will be followed closely, but no other intervention is necessary unless clini their, their clinical status should change. Medical management of children with symptomatic acyanotic heart defects is directed towards decreasing cardiac demands while improving cardiac function. Children will often exhibit signs of congestive heart failure. Congestive heart failure is characterized by myocardial dysfunction and decreased cardiac output. 
the goals of treatment for children with congestive heart failure are to enhance myocardial contractility, decrease oxygen demands, and remove excess intravascular fluid. Treatments include drug therapy, management of fluid balance, nutritional management, and comfort measures. What nursing care is indicated for infants with acyanotic defects? Nursing care for infants with acyanotic heart defects is directed towards, first, decreasing energy expenditure. This is accomplished by organizing nursing care to provide frequent rest periods, providing small frequent feedings, preventing cold stress, and reducing the effort of breathing. The second, providing adequate nutrition. Infants may tire quickly when feeding, so the nurse must estimate daily caloric requirements and plan feeding intervention to meet this requirement. It is also important to have the child on intake and output as well as daily weights. Third, administer medications as ordered. The child most often is placed on digoxin and diuretic. Specific guidelines for digoxin administration must be part of the parent's teaching plan. Two examples of information to include in digoxin teaching would be, for instance, if two or more doses are missed in a row, the parent will need to notify the physician. Another part of information to include are the signs and symptoms of digoxin toxicity, which include anorexia, diarrhea, vomiting, lethargy, and fever. Any of these symptoms also need to be reported to a physician. And lastly, psychosocial support for the family. The, diagno the diagnosis of heart disease in children creates fear and concern for families. Information that the family can understand is essential. Which heart defects are cyanotic? The cyanosis associated with congenital heart defects is caused by hypoxia and if not treated can lead to acidosis and death. Two examples of cyanotic congenital heart disease are Tetralogy of Fallot and Transposition of the Great Vessels. Tetralogy of Fallot comprises four components, a large ventricular septal defect, pulmonary stenosis causing obstruction of the right ventricular outflow tract, overriding aorta, and right ventricular hypertrophy. Symptomatology will be dependent on the degree of obstruction at the, of pulmonary blood flow. Transposition of the great vessels occurs when the aorta arises from the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery arises from the left ventricle. For survival, there must be some anatomic communication between the systemic and the pulmonary circulations. Transposition of the great vessels is the second most common congenital heart defect. Remember that ventricular septal defects were the most common of congenital defects. What are the most important nursing care implications when caring for an infant with Tetralogy of Fallot? Ongoing nursing assessment is crucial when caring for an infant with Tetralogy of Fallot. Cyanosis is the most obvious symptom of Tetralogy, and it is directly proportional to the degree of obstructed pulmonary blood flow. As obstruction to pulmonary blood flow increases, the child's symptoms will become more severe. Hypercyanotic spells, which are often referred to as TET spells, are caused by hypoxemia and occur with increasing obstruction. During one of these episodes, the nurse should place the child in a knee chest position and notify the physician. One of the fascinating parts of Tetralogy of Fallot and these hypercyanotic spells is that children will often squat on their own to increase, to increase blood flow. However, during one of their severe episodes, administration of oxygen and morphine sulfate might be necessary. Other symptoms of Tetralogy of Fallot include exercise intolerance, 
dyspnea, failure to thrive, and polycythemia. Surgery is required to correct this defect, and it is usually performed during the first year of life. Preoperative preparation is directed towards teaching the parents about the procedure, familiarizing them with the environment of the intensive care unit, and introduction of the equipment that will be used. This is a very foreign atmosphere for parents as well as the child. Post-operative care will take place in the intensive care unit and interventions are directed towards maintenance of adequate cardiac output, promotion of gas exchange, and alleviation of pain. You mentioned transposition of the grape vessels. What is that? Transposition of the grape vessels is a congenital heart defect where the aorta arises from the right ventricle and the pulmonary artery arises from the left ventricle. This creates two separate circulations. Oxygenated blood circulates through the left side of the heart to the lungs and back to the left side. Unoxygenated blood from the body enters the right atrium goes into the right ventricle and ret returns to the body without being oxygenated. Survival is dependent on some communication between the atria or the ventricles. This communication is usually through the ductus arteriosus or the foramen ovale. A balloon septostomy may be performed during cardiac catheterization to create a larger pulmonary to systemic shunt. Surgical repair usually occurs soon after diagnosis. Are there congenital defects related to the neurological system? Yes, there are congenital defects related to the neurological system. Spina bifida is an example. Spina bifida is a neural tube defect resulting in failure of the posterior vertebral arches to fuse during embryologic development. This defect may occur anywhere along the spinal column, but is most frequent in the lumbar sacral area. There are several types of spina bifida. A meningocele is one type and consists of a sac-like cyst filled with meninges and spinal fluid. A meningomyelocele is more severe with the sac containing meninges, spinal fluid, and a portion of the spinal cord with its nerves. Another example of a congenital defect of the neurologic system is hydrocephalus. In hydrocephalus, there is increased amounts of cerebral spinal fluid within the ventricles of the brain. In congenital conditions, this is usually due to a structural obstruction. What are the most important nursing care implications for infants with meningomyelocele? The child with a meningomyelocele, or sometimes called a myelomeningocele may have many complex problems. The location and the severity of the defect will determine the extent of motor dysfunction and sensory impairment. For example, there may be a total lack of bowel and bladder control due to defective nerve supply to that area. Also, congenital club foot and congenital hip dysplasias may be present. Surgical closure of the sac usually occurs within 48 hours of birth. Nursing interventions are divided into preoperative and postoperative care. Preoperative interventions are directed towards prevention of trauma to the sac and prevention of infection. Specific interventions include, first, positioning. The infant is placed on the abdomen with the hips slightly flexed. The second is the care of the sac. The sac should be covered with a sterile, moist, non-adherent dressing. Sterile normal saline is usually the moistening solution that is used. This will prevent drying of the sac that would actually, if the sac would dry, would lead to cracking and therefore escape of cerebral spinal fluid and an increased possibility of infection. The sac also must be free from contamination by urine and feces and continuous assessment for signs of cerebral spinal fluid leakage is imperative. Postoperatively, the prone position will be maintained. 
The surgical site is assessed for signs of infection as well as collection of fluid. Since hydrocephalus is a potential problem, head circumferences measured daily and fontanelles are assessed for tension and bulging. Is there an association between meningomyelocele and hydrocephalus? Yes. Hydrocephalus is frequently associated with meningomyelocele. This is usually due to a brain defect known as arnold sherrari malformation, which is characterized by a downward displacement of the lower brainstem and cerebellum into the cervical canal. This results in obstruction of cerebral spinal fluid flow. How does the nurse assess an infant for hydrocephalus? Clinical manifestations of hydrocephalus di differ depending on the age of the child. In infancy, before closure of the cranial sutures, the most common clinical symptoms of increased intracranial pressure include a tense bulging fontanelle, increasing head circumference, and prominent scalp veins. The infant may also show signs of irritability, lethargy, and poor feeding. Sunset eyes, described as a fixed downward gaze of the child with a sclera vis visual above the irises, may also be evident. In older children whose sutures have closed, the signs and symptoms of increased intracranial pressure include headache, anorexia, nausea, vomiting, blurred vision, papilledema, and altered level of consciousness. What is done for an infant with hydrocephalus? Surgical intervention is necessary for most children with hydrocephalus, and the most common procedure is a shunt insertion. The shunt is placed into the, into the ventricle, allowing the cerebral spinal fluid to be redirected. The most common type is a ventriculoperitoneal shunt, often referred to as a VP shunt. Preoperative care is directed towards managing a child with increased intracranial pressure and teaching the parents about the surgery and what to expect postoperatively. Postoperatively, the child is positioned flat on the unoperated side. This prevents sudden reduction of intracranial fluid and pressure on the shunt valve. Assessment for signs of increased intracranial pressure continues. Intake and output are carefully monitored. Infection of the cerebral spinal fluid is a potential complication, so vital signs, feeding intolerance, vomiting, and changes in level of consciousness must be carefully assessed. What would be examples of congenital conditions of the gastrointestinal tract? Examples of congenital conditions of the gastrointestinal tract include cleft lip, cleft palate, pyloric stenosis, Hirschsprung's disease, intussusception, and tracheoesophageal atresia and fistula. Cleft lip and palate are very obvious defects. What are the important nursing care actions related to the care of the infant with a cleft lip and palate? Cleft lip and cleft palate are facial malformations. These malformations can occur separately or together. A cleft lip is the non-union of the tissue and the bone of the upper lip. It can happen unilateral or bilateral. A cleft palate is the non-union of the hard and the soft palate, resulting in a communication between the mouth and the nose. Surgical correction of the cleft lip called a chiloplasty, is usually performed about two months of age. The goal of surgery is to unite the edges to allow the lip to be both functionally and cosmetically attractive. Cleft palate repair is performed at approximately 18 months of age in anticipation of speech development. Nursing management for the child with a cleft lip, a cleft palate, or a combination of both can be divided into preoperative and postoperative care. 
Preoperative care of the child with a cleft lip includes, first, feed the infant in an upright position to decrease the chance of aspiration and decrease the amount of air swallowed. One also must burp the infant frequently because they definitely do swallow a good deal of air that actually can lead to their abdomen becoming distended. Second, identify the most successful method to feed the infant. Place this information on the nursing care plan so that everyone uses the same method. Post-operative care of the child with a cleft lip includes, first, maintain a patent airway. Second, avoid trauma to the suture line. Elbow restraints will be necessary to keep the infant's fingers away from their mouth and their face. Positioning the infant is in an upright, sideline, or back position, never prone. You don't want them moving their face back and forth along the bed linens. Third, keep the suture line clean. After each feeding, clean the suture line carefully with saline, peroxide, or water to remove crust and prevent scarring. This will, many times you will have to check with the physician in terms of how they best want you to go about doing this. Preoperative care of the child with a cleft palate includes preparation of the child and the parents for surgery and instructions concerning feeding methods and positioning postoperatively. Ideally, the child should be totally weaned from the bottle or the breast and drinking from a cup. Postoperative management includes positioning the child on their side for drainage of blood and mucus and again, prevention of trauma to the suture line. This also includes the use of elbow restraints to keep the child's hand away from their mouth and their face. Absolutely nothing is to go in their mouth, not their fingers, straws, bottles, utensils, for this will damage the suture line. Use only a cup for feeding and follow each feeding with water to clean the suture line. How are esophageal atresia and tracheoesophageal fistula diagnosed? Congenital esophageal atresia and tracheal esophageal fistula are rare defects that result when the esophagus fails to develop as a continuous passage and the trachea and the esophagus fail to separate into two distinct structures. These defects can occur separately or they can occur together. Clinical findings are, are what first suggest diagnosis. Signs and symptoms include increased salivation, drooling, intermittent cyanosis from choking on their own secretions, and immediate regurgitation of undigested formula or breast milk when the infant is fed. The nurse very often is the person who, who sees these symptoms in the child in the newborn nursery. X-ray findings confirm diagnosis. If this congenital anomaly is suspected, the infant is immediately made NPO, nothing by mouth, intravenous fluids are started, and the child is positioned in such a way as to facilitate drainage of secretions. Surgical correction is the treatment of choice. This will be dependent on how complex the defect is as to what age the child will start with their surgical repair. A mother reports that her baby has been vomiting more and more and that it goes across the room. The nurse examines the baby and notes that the baby is not gaining weight. What might this indicate? The symptoms of forceful vomiting and failure to gain weight might indicate pyloric stenosis. Pyloric stenosis occurs when there is hypertrophy of the muscle of the pyloric sphincter resulting in obstruction at the outlet of the stomach. As the hypertrophy increases, vomiting becomes more forceful, often given that characteristic of projectile vomiting. Other assessment findings other than the projectile vomiting might include failure to gain weight, dehydration, an olive-sized bulge under the right rib cage, and visible peristaltic waves during and after feeding. What is the treatment for pyloric stenosis? 
Surgical intervention is the treatment of choice for pyloric stenosis. The surgery is known as a pyloromyotomy and is a longitudinal division of the muscle down to the submucosa. Preoperatively, nursing interventions are directed toward restoring adequate hydration, usually through intravenous therapy. Make sure to record intake and out output, daily weights, and urine-specific gravity. Postoperatively, feeding usually begins within 24 hours post-surgery. Inform the parents that postoperative vomiting is common so that they do not become alarmed. After feeding, be sure to place the infant in high Fowler's position on their right side. Continue to monitor intake and output, daily weight, and urine-specific gravity. Also, be sure to assess the surgical wound for any signs of infection. Could you explain congenital aganglionic megacolon? Congenital aganglionic megacolon is another name for Hirschsprung's disease. This is the name that you will more frequently see associated with congenital aganglionic megacolon. This is an absence of autonomic parasympathetic ganglion cells in a portion of the large colon resulting in decreased motility in that portion of the colon and signs of functional obstruction. This obstruction causes accumulation of intestinal contents and bowel distension proximal to the defect. Assessment findings include failure to pass meconium, which would, you would notice in the newborn nursery, abdominal distension, failure to thrive, vomiting, and diarrhea. Rectal biopsy confirms the diagnosis. Surgical correction is necessary. Initially, the infant requires construction of a temporary colostomy. This allows the distended bowel to rest and return to normal functioning. Several months later, an abdominal perineal pull-through will be performed to correct the problem. Once it is established that there is adequate bowel function, then the colostomy will be closed. Needless to say, nursing interventions must include teaching the parents to work with, a with their child that has a colostomy. How does Hirschsprung's disease differ from intussusception? Intussusception is the telescoping of one portion of the intestine into another. The most frequent site at which this occurs is the ileocecal valve. As a result, there is obstruction to the passage of intestinal contents. Assessment findings include severe abdominal pain, bile stained vomitus, a piercing cry, and current jelly looking stools. The current jelly stool appearance is due to the blood and the mucosa that is present in the stool. Barium enema confirms the diagnosis. Also something to remember is that performance of a barium enema will sometimes correct the problem. Otherwise, surgical intervention is necessary. Nursing interventions would surround care of the child having abdominal surgery, so things such as care of the surgical site, maintenance of proper hydration, and teaching the parents about the procedure and post-operatively what to expect are part of management. What physical findings indicate that a baby may have congenital hip dislocation? Congenital hip dislocation, or sometimes referred to as congenital hip dysplasia, is the displacement of the head of the femur out of the acetabulum. It is apparent at birth and displays various degrees of deformity. Every child in a newborn nursery should be assessed for congenital hip dislocation. The hip joint at birth is mostly made of cartilage, so it is extremely important that the head of the femur be in the correct position in the acetabulum so that normal shape and configuration will be achieved as ossification proceeds. Physical findings that indicate dislocation of the hip include unequal skin folds on the thigh or the buttocks, 
limitation of abduction on the affected side, and unequal knee height. In the newborn period, Ortolani sign, which is the ability to reduce or dislocate the hip manually, may be evident. Congenital dislocated hip can be unilateral or bilateral, so one must really be alert to assessment of both areas, both hips of the baby, in order to pick this up in the newborn nursery and in later physical assessment of the child. How is congenital hip dislocation treated? The greatest success is achieved if treatment begins before two months of age. So you can see how crucial it is that this is diagnosed early in the newborn period. Early treatment consists of positioning the hip in abduction with the head of the femur in the acetabulum and maintaining it in position for several months. In children up to six months of age, this is usually achieved with various splinting devices that keep the hips abductive. The Pavlik harness is the device most commonly used. It looks quite complicated when you first take a look at it and when you first might have to place it on a baby, but after doing it one or two times, it becomes quite easy. This device stays on the baby 24 hours a day other than taking it off to, to actually look for signs that it might be too small, too tight, or have pressure points, but it is something that the child wears all of the time. Children 6 to 18 months of age require traction and casting. Correction of hip deformities in older children often requires traction, surgery, and casting. What is congenital clubfoot? Clubfoot is a term used to describe a common deformity involving the bones, muscles, and tendons of the foot. Physical examination reveals a foot which is adducted with inversion and plantar flexion. The examiner is unable to manipulate the foot into normal positions, thus ruling out a positional deformity. You may have seen many newborn babies that just by being in utero look like they have club foot, but actually when you try to manipulate their foot, it's quite easy to bring it into normal position. So this is not a congenital club foot, but really just a, a, a positional deformity. Serial casting is the usual method of treatment for congenital club foot. This allows for gradual stretching of the tight structures and gradual contraction of the lax structures of the foot. Nursing interventions are directed towards care of the child in a cast and helping the parents to understand the goals of a long-term treatment program. Helping the parents care for the child with the cast at home will definitely be part of your priorities. Is Wilms tumor a congenital condition? Wilms tumor, a type of renal cancer in children, is a congenital condition. The tumor originates during fetal life from undifferentiated embryonic tissue. The most common presenting sign is a firm, non-tender mass confined to one side of the body within the abdomen. It is usually discovered by the parent while bathing or dressing the child. It is that finding that brings the parent to the pediatrician's office for further investigation. Once the child is hospitalized, a do not palpate abdomen sign should be placed at the child's bedside. Manipulation of the mass may cause dissemination of cancer cells. This is sometimes difficult to do because since Wilms tumor is a very rare type of renal cancer, many people will want to come and examine the child. So you have to really be the child's advocate and make sure that minimal people manipulate the child. Treatment depends on clinical staging and includes surgery, chemotherapy, and possibly radiation therapy. So nursing interventions will all be geared to the child undergoing a surgical procedure, a child receiving chemotherapy, 
and the possibility of treating a child that will also be receiving radiation therapy. What is cystic fibrosis? Cystic fibrosis is the most common genetic disease among Caucasians in the United States. It is an autosomal recessive genetic disorder characterized by dysfunction of the exocrine glands. An autosomal recessive disorder means that both parents must carry the trait in order for the child to have the disease. The exocrine glands are the mucus-producing glands of the respiratory tract, the gastrointestinal tract, the pancreas, the sweat glands, and the salivary glands. So children will manifest symptoms in all or some of these areas. Secretions from mucus glands become very thick and cause obstruction and fibrosis of tissue. Clinical manifestations vary widely among children, but it is pulmonary and pancreatic symptoms that we see most commonly. Symptoms can be evident in some or all of these, these, these systems. The most common diagnostic tool is the sweat chloride test, which involves stimulating the production of sweat, collecting the sweat, and measuring the electrolytes. Always remember that clinical findings become very important because sweat tests can be normal or abnormal on, for other conditions also. So one must always think of the clinical manifestations along with testing. Why does the child with cystic fibrosis have failure to thrive? Failure to thrive is a clinical manifestation of cystic fibrosis because of a series of events. The pancreatic duct becomes obstructed, so that the digestive enzymes, meaning trypsin, chymotrypsin, amylase, and lipase, are unable to be released into the duodenum. This in turn prevents food from being absorbed. The undigested food is then excreted in the stool. Typically, children have good appetites and eat adequate quantities of food, but because of the inability to absorb the nutrients, which are primarily fats and proteins, they gradually lose weight and manifest a failure to thrive. Explain the nursing management of cystic fibrosis. Nursing management is directed towards prevention of pulmonary complications, management of gastrointestinal problems, and helping the family and the child address, adjust to this chronic condition. Interventions to prevent pulmonary complications include postural drainage and percussion of the lungs. This occurs two to four times a day administration of bronchodilators, physical exercise, and immediate treatment of pulmonary infections. Interventions directed towards the management of gastrointestinal problems include administration of pancreatic enzymes with all meals and snacks, daily multivitamin supplementation, a high caloric diet, and salt supplementation as needed. The child and family need ongoing support and encouragement in dealing with the daily demands of treatment within the context of the changing development of the child. How is the care of the child with celiac disease similar to the care of the child with cystic fibrosis? Celiac disease is a malabsorption syndrome characterized by intolerance of gluten, which is a protein found in rye, oats, wheat, and barley. Because of pathophysiologic changes on the mucosal surface of the intestine, there is a marked malabsorption of fats. Failure to thrive is a common presenting symptom. This is similar to the child who has cystic fibrosis. Treatment for celiac disease is a gluten-free diet. Until now, we have been discussing congenital conditions. We will now focus on some acquired conditions, 
which are those types of conditions that develop after birth. How is rheumatic fever related to strep throat? Rheumatic fever is an autoimmune disorder that affects the heart, joints, connective tissue, and the central nervous system. It is usually preceded by a group A beta hemolytic streptococcal upper respiratory tract infection. Diagnosis of rheumatic fever is based on clinical manifestations known as the Jones criteria. In the Jones criteria, there are major and minor symptoms, and it is a combination of some of these major and minor symptoms that leads to diagnosis. There is no one clinical test that can diagnose rheumatic fever. Major symptoms include carditis, polyarthritis, chorea, subcutaneous nodules, and erythema marginatum. Carditis is characterized by Ashcoff nodules, which are areas of inflammation and degeneration around the heart valves, pericardial, pericardium, and myocardium. Chorea is a central nervous system finding that is characterized by abrupt, purposeless, involuntary muscular movements. Subcutaneous nodules are firm, non-tender nodes on bony prominences of the joints. Erythema marginatum is a transient, non-puritic rash starting with central patches and expanding. Minor symptoms or minor criteria include the history of a group A beta hemolytic strep upper respiratory tract infection and perhaps an elevated sedimentation rate. So remember, it is a combination of these particular major and minor symptoms that lead to diagnosis. Medical management consists primarily of drug therapy with penicillin, salicylates, and steroids being the backbones of treatment. Nursing interventions are directed towards alleviation of symptomatology. Needless to say, carditis would be probably the most severe of these particular symptoms. And it is this particular symptom that can have long-term effects on the child. What is the most important nursing care when caring for a child who has had a tonsillectomy? Removal of the tonsils is one of the most common operations performed on children. Post-operative nursing interventions include, first, observation for signs of bleeding. These signs include frequent swallowing, increased pulse, and vomiting of bright red blood. Number two, positioning. Position the child on their side or their abdomen to facilitate drainage of secretion. Number three, alleviate pain. An ice collar is often suggested for use. However, this might be helpful for some children. Others will find it very bothersome. Offer, offer analgesics as ordered. Number four, Prevent dehydration by offering clear, cool, non-citrus, non-red fluids when awake and alert. And finally, planning home care. Alert the parents that bleeding may occur five to 10 days after surgery due to sloughing of the tissue from the healing process. Any sign of bleeding must be reported to the physician immediately. I'm going to break in here with the NCLEX alert because one thing that was on the NCLEX that I did not hear them talk about was Turner's syndrome. What is Turner's syndrome? Well, it's a combination of a whole lot of things, but it usually uh, hits a person in their pre-teens to teens. And what it is, is the person has a short stature, a low hairline, a shield-shaped thorax, widely spaced nipples, short metacorpal uh, phalanges, 
small fingernails, so their fingers are small. They have brown spots all over their body. I don't know why. I know someone and met someone that had this. And they have brown spots all over their body that looks like mosquitoes, mosquito bites. They have characteristic facial features. Uh, they have folds of skin on their neck and mostly under their chin. They have a constriction of the aorta. They have poor breast development, elbow deformality, rudimentary ovaries, conoidal streak, which means that they have underdeveloped conoidal structures. Their uh, ovaries are small and they have no menstruation. Now, how do we treat this? Uh, we really cannot treat this. There is no cure for this disease, but we do, um, you know, treat it as the symptoms uh, arise. The constricted, the constricted aorta, we treat, you know, whatever bothers the patient. Also, a lot of these patients tend to have develop type 1 diabetes. Now, let's continue with the program. Describe the nursing management of an infant with gastroenteritis. Gastroenteritis is an inflammation of the stomach and intestines, causing a change in consistency and frequency of stools. It can be caused by many factors, such as bacteria, virus, parasites, poisons, and other factors. Infants can quickly become dehydrated, so accurate assessment is vital. Attention must be given to urine output, urine-specific gravity, presence of tears and saliva, quality of mucous membranes, skin turgor, and the status of the anterior fontanelle. Remember, in dehydration, the anterior fontanelle will become depressed as, as um, dehydration increases. Nursing interventions include administration of intravenous fluids as ordered, skin care to prevent excoriation of the diaper area, isolation if an infectious cause is evident, and ongoing assessment of hydration status. Could you be more specific about the nursing assessment of hydration status? Guidelines for assessment of hydration status include the following. Temperature. A subnormal temperature is often associated with dehydration due to reduced energy output. Heart rate. Tachycardia is increasingly evident with greater degrees of dehydration. In severe dehydration, which is defined as more than 20% of body weight lost, bradycardia becomes evident. So that is a difference between moderate and severe dehydration. The pulse may have a bounding or thready and weak characteristic dependent on underlying metabolic disturbances. Blood pressure. Falling blood pressure is associated with moderate and severe dehydration. It is usually unchanged when it is just a very slight dehydration of the child. Urine output. Normal, normal urine output in children is 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram per hour. Normal specific gravity of urine is 1.001 to 1.020. With increasing dehydration, output will diminish and specific gravity increase due to an increase in urine concentration. Weight. The child's present weight must be compared to the previous weight. Be sure to weigh the child without their clothes and without their diaper at the same time, which is usually before feeding and after voiding, and on the same scale daily. Rapid weight loss is characteristic of increased fluid volume loss. Mucous membranes. The mucous membranes of the mouth should be moist. With increasing degrees of dehydration, they will be dry to parched. Fontanelles. Normal fontanelles should feel soft and full. 
In moderate to severe dehydration, the fontanelle will change, and, and you will be able to see a fontanelle that looks depressed to a sunken look. Color. The child's skin color is normally pink and warm. Somnosis and burn action color to the skin is associated with severe dehydration. Skin turgor. The abdominal area and the medial aspect of the thigh are the best places to assess skin turgor. For normal conditions, if you pinch the skin, it returns to normal. In dehydration, pinched skin may remain raised for a brief time. Apply these guidelines in your assessment of all children, but particularly to those children with an alteration in fluid status. What is enuresis? Enuresis, commonly referred to as bedwetting, is the involuntary passage of urine that occurs after the age for bladder control is expected. Most children achieve day and nighttime bladder control by five years of age. There are two types of enuresis, primary and secondary. Primary enuresis is a condition in which the child has never achieved control, and this is the most common type of enuresis. Secondary enuresis is recurring bedwetting in a child who has remained dry for at least six months. Certain disease processes may cause enuresis, so performance of diagnostic studies is important to rule out any organic cause. For example, a urine culture is necessary to rule out infection, and radiology studies may be necessary to rule out structural abnormalities of the urinary tract system. Once all organic causes are ruled out, what nursing interventions could be important? The nurse must explain to the family that this is a common problem in children. It must be stressed that this is not a conscious behavior of the child and that the child has no control over the wedding event. Actually, these events can be anxiety producing and cause the child to be embarrassed. Age-appropriate interventions must be planned to give the child a sense of control. For example, a five or six-year-old child can strip their bed and actually bring their wash down to the washing machine. As the child gets older, this task can become more complex. Giving praise and support for small accomplishments will boost the child's self-esteem. Avoid scolding the child at any time for any of these events. The child and family will also need information and guidance about medical interventions. These may include bladder stretching exercises, bed alarm devices, and drug management.